Now we give attention to the public reading of the Holy Word of God as we find it in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 24. Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and feastal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. A few days ago, uh, Bonnie sent out an email uh, that said that our little church family has been uh, hit hard lately by grief and loss and uh, the other uh, vagaries of life. And I thought to myself, that is uh, a really good lead-in to uh, Hebrews 12, because there are times uh, sometimes more acute than others when we are hit hard by circumstances and we need encouragement uh, from the Scriptures. And encouragement is one of the reasons we come together each Sunday to hear uh, God's Word read and proclaimed. Uh, there's a verse in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, that says that a, a key part of the public ministry of the Word is to exhort and encourage. Uh, there in that verse, Paul says to Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. And we find, don't we, that so much of uh, the Bible is speaking words of encouragement to God's people. I think it does this in two primary ways. Uh, the first, by reminding us who God is. Like Psalm uh, 93 uh, in last week's uh, message uh, from Ronnie, uh, reminding us that no matter what our circumstances may be, the Lord reigns. He will never stop reigning, for His throne is established from of old, and He is from everlasting to everlasting. Uh, a second key way that the Bible encourages us is by reminding us of all the benefits that we enjoy now in the Lord, and all that yet remains for us to enjoy. Uh, some examples of some encouragement in the Scriptures, again, it's 
and the, the scriptures are full of encouragements. Um, I think of the very last verse of uh, the book of Daniel, uh, that word of encouragement to Daniel <clears throat> as an old man who has seen much trial and tribulation. Um, that last verse to him, go your way till the end and you shall rest and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Again, encouragement to persevere, to keep going, go on till the end because there will come a day when you will rest. Yes, that means death, but it means so much more. Uh, it's a eternal it's a Sabbath rest, and you shall stand. And that's so much more than just rising from the dead. You will stand before your king, whom you loved and whom you will serve all the days of eternity. And you will stand in your allotted place, <clears throat> though you die in Babylon. You have an allotted place in the promised land. And there, you will enjoy eternity. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 29, The Lord gives power to the faint, and to him who has not might, he increases strength. They who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. In the New Testament, we have those well-known words of Jesus in John 14, words of encouragement, where he tells his disciples that he is going away. But the encouraging word is he's going away to prepare a place for them. And he says, if I go to prepare a place, I will come again for you, that where I am, there you may also be. And Paul says in Philippians 3, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. All of those things are encouragements to us. And I think in a particularly focused way, that is what the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews is doing in our passage this morning. He is exhorting believers to press on to the end. And that really is the purpose of the entire letter uh, to the Hebrews give you a few verses that would bear that out. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, but exhort or encourage one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our confidence firm to the end. Hebrews chapter 6, uh, verses 11 to 12, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, beginning in, uh, I think it's verse 22. Uh, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes um, 
being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, here's the encouragement, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And the writer ends, closes his letter uh, to the Hebrews. Chapter 13, verse 22, I appeal to you, bear with my word of exhortation. So with that introduction, let's consider what encouragement our passage this morning offers us. Uh, We need to begin with the context of Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 24, and the story of the letter to the Hebrews. That story is bound up in the author and the original audience and the message. Well, as you may know, the author is unknown to all except God. Many speculations who it might be, some say Paul, some others, but really no one knows with certainty. But our writer was likely a Hebrew writing to an audience of believers steeped in the Hebrew tradition. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, the very opening of the letter, long ago God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Who else but a Hebrew writing to Hebrews would say, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets? And throughout the letter, the writer makes key points through the backdrop of Hebrew history, uh, drawing lessons from Moses and the Exodus out of Egypt, the Old Testament priesthood and sacrifices and the Old Testament champions of faith, Abel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, and so many others, the great cloud of witnesses. The original audience were first century Christians enduring suffering. Again, we saw that in the reading of Hebrews uh, chapter 10. After you were enlightened, after you came to faith, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And what is the overarching theme of uh, this letter of exhortation, of encouragement? Well, it's this. Jesus Christ and the new covenant are superior in every way to the old covenant. Therefore, do not retreat from the new back to the old, but persevere. Go your way till the end, in those words to Daniel. Press on, in the words of the Apostle Paul. And so the letter to the Hebrews has been characterized again as an exhortation, a Hebrew writing to Hebrews, telling them not to be Hebrews anymore. Don't retreat. Don't go back to the old ways. 
And that raises a question for us. Is a letter of such a Hebraic nature relevant to us who did not come out of a Jewish background? And the answer is, yes, it is. It's relevant in every way. Why? Well, because like them, we are tempted to retreat. Like them, we need encouragement to press on, particularly when, as Bonnie said in her email, those times of grief and loss and all the circumstances of life seem to kind of surround us and press us down. We need encouragement to go our way till the end. And the reasons to press on for us are the same as those for the original readers. Because Jesus Christ and the new covenant are superior in every way to that which we left behind when grace came to us. And also because of the warning that the writer gives. If we refuse him who is speaking to us and his offer of grace. Well, how does the author develop this theme of superiority? Well, it's through a series of comparisons, comparing the greater to the lesser. For example, in the first chapter, the revelation of God through his Son is superior to the revelation of the Old Testament prophets because Christ, again, is Son of God speaking. He is the heir of all things and the radiance of the glory of God who upholds all things through the word of his power. That's how the writer launches into the comparisons. From there, he says that Christ is superior to the angels. That's the rest of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. Christ is superior to Moses. It's chapter 3 and chapter 4. Christ is superior to the Old Testament priests and to the Old uh, Testament covenant. Uh, his blood in the New is superior to that in terms of the offerings of the blood of animals. That's chapter 5 through chapter 10. Chapter 11, uh, the New Testament way of faith is superior to the old because we obtain presently what the Old Testament saints could only long for. Chapter 11, verse 13, all of these champions of the Old Testament in faith says they died in faith. Um, though not receiving the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Chapter 11, verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, for God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. And so the New Testament privileges are superior to those of the Old Testament because they are based on promises fulfilled in Christ rather than promises foretold. And all of these comparisons of superiority of the new to the old lead up to the exhortations of chapter 12, verse 1. 
chapter 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see that? Enduring the cross, despising the shame. Our race, like his, is not without opposition, fierce opposition. And so the writer addresses that opposition and gives encouragement and reasons to press on. First, again, he reminds us that Christ endured this opposition more than we have. That's Hebrews 12, 3 to 4. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Consider him so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now, there is encouragement for us in considering all that Christ as our forerunner went through in terms of suffering that we too may be encouraged uh, in times of suffering. Uh, then uh, the writer says that our struggles against this sin-moded opposition uh, are part of God's discipline for us as sons. In chapter 12, beginning in verse 5, And have you forgotten the exhortation, the encouragement that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Verse 11, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, here's the encouragement, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. And all of this sets up the context of our text this morning, beginning in verse 18, where the writer gives another reason for pressing on. And he does it with another comparison, showing the superiority of the New Testament saints to the old in terms of our relationship with the Lord. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Well, let's consider this comparison that our writer gives us and the encouragement it brings. The underlying theme of the comparison is what? It's the Exodus. There was an Exodus in the Old Testament, the Israelites coming out of Egypt, and there is an Exodus in the New Testament. 
believers exiting out of uh, this world uh, for the world remade at the end of the age. In both journeys and in this comparison, there is a mountain which sets the tone of the relationship between man and God. The Old Testament mountain was Mount Sinai. The New Testament mountain is Mount Zion. Well, I think it would help us uh, in this uh, consideration of the comparison to look at the historical encounter of uh, the people of Israel with God at Mount Sinai. So I invite you to turn uh, to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. The whole mountain trembled greatly and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. And Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. And then turning over to Exodus 20. Uh, verses 18 to 19. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. They stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us. And we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Exodus 24, verse 17. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. I can't imagine what it would have been like to have met God standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. But a word comes to mind, and the word is discomfited. Discomfited is a good old King James word. And let me show you where that is used. It's used in, a, in, a, in Psalm... Um, 18. And the context of this word is when David cries out to the Lord uh, to come down uh, to engage David's enemies. Psalm 18, verse 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry came before him, even unto his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken because he was 
wrath. And there's another good old King James word. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were, were kindled by it. And you can kind of see the same imagery uh, of the Exodus encounter with God at Mount Sinai. He bowed the heavens also and came down, and darkness was under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and did fly. Yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His pavilion round about him were dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. At the brightness that was before him, this thick cloud passed, hailstones and coals of fire, the Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the highest gave his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. Yea, he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He shot out lightnings and discomfited them. Well, I can remember uh, being with a group of men, and we were having a time of study with uh, Dr. Bruce Walkie. And I said to uh, Dr. Walkie, what does discomfited mean? And he said, giving us all a uh, visual image of the word discomfited, <clears throat> he said, they soiled their pants, okay? <laughs> Can you imagine being at the foot of Mount Sinai, trembling and quaking before uh, the Lord, trembling in fear? I think we all would have been discomfited. But that's not where we have come to. The writer of the epistle to the Hebrews says, you've not come to that mountain which may be touched. You have not come to Mount Sinai. You have not come to the blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest. You have not come to a place where you stand before God in dread. Rather, you have come to Mount Zion. Well, notice the word here, you have come. The writers didn't say you are coming to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. You're almost there. Keep going. He says you have come. You are there now spiritually and positionally. You have joined those enrolled in heaven. Some corresponding texts which bear that out. Uh, Paul in Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven. We are enrolled in the citizenship of heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 6, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then He says, And you have been raised up with Him. And we had, He has seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so having come to Mount Zion, look at the present and the ongoing privileges and benefits to enjoy here. And we don't have time to consider them all in depth, uh, but look. You have joined a festal gathering of angels, which speaks of 
present and future joy compared to the darkness and the gloom and the tempest of Mount Sinai. Well, there can be seasons of life when we feel shrouded in gloom. Perhaps some of you even today may have that sense of gloom. And we might be cheered in some simple pleasures, perhaps just spending time with your best friend or hearing the sounds of children playing and laughing or listening to a favorite piece of music or petting your favorite dog or your cat, if that's your pleasure. Simple things that God has given to us for enjoyment. But as helpful as those things are, I do not think they are adequate to clear away the gloom spoken of here in Hebrews 12. The word here is really a deep, deep darkness. We might say a hellish gloom. We see this word used in Jude once in verse 6 where he speaks of the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, the fallen angels. He says God has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. And there's our word. At the end of his letter, Jude, speaking of false shepherds, says they are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Well, what can dispel that kind of abiding, hellish gloom? The answer is only a heavenly joy. And that we have in Jesus, no matter what our circumstances may be, Christians have every reason to be joyful. John 17, verse 13, on the night before his crucifixion, the worst of circumstances ever upon the face of the earth, the crucifixion of the Son of God. Jesus prayed for his disciples and for us who believe on Christ through their testimony and words, saying to his Father, but now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy in themselves. That is the joy that can dispel such deep, dark gloom. It is the joy of Christ himself. Paul, writing from prison to the Philippian believers, said, Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Paul also says in Galatians um, that the Holy Spirit gives us this joy, this divine and heavenly joy. It's one of the fruits of his ministry to us. And so when your joy is lacking in those seasons of gloom, um, for whatever reason, Enjoy some of the simple pleasures of life. But more importantly, pray for the Spirit to increase your joy 
renew it. And remember where you are and what you have come to. You are at Mount Zion. And in the company of festal angels gathered round about you. And here, more than coming to the festal gathering of angels, you have come to God the Father and to Jesus and to his sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What a comparison we have there. The blood of Jesus compared to the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out for vengeance because he was murdered by his brother, slain by him. And do you remember what happened to Abel's blood? This is in Genesis chapter 4. The ground swallowed it. So God says in Genesis 4. He says to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. That's the word that Abel's blood speaks. Well, Christ was slain too. But what happened to his blood? The author of the epistle to the Hebrews says that it was sprinkled. Corresponding, I think, to the Levitical practice of sprinkling the blood of the sacrificial lamb on the mercy seat. That's Leviticus chapter 16 if you want to read that. And even our own writer in Hebrews uses it again, the word sprinkled in chapter 10, verses 19 to 22. He says, Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. What is the word that Christ's blood speaks that is better than the blood of Abel? It's not vengeance. It is peace. F.F. Bruce, um, a Scottish um, theologian, said, Abel's blood cried out to God from the ground, protesting against his murder and appealing for vindication. But the blood of Christ brings a message of cleansing, forgiveness, and peace with God to all who place their faith in him. Well, let me wrap up with a few lessons uh, from this text. First lesson, believe that Mount Zion is real. In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian meets a character named Atheist who told uh, Christian, what you seek does not exist. Atheist says, I have searched for uh, Mount Zion for lo these 20 years and I've found nothing. And that's what an unbelieving world will tell you. They will say, if you think you're on a journey to Mount Zion, you're on a fool's errand. But God says otherwise, doesn't he? His word says that the things you can see are transitory. 
It's the things you cannot see that are real and eternal. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. And the author of Hebrews says that Abraham, by faith, looked forward to a real city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And that's Hebrews 11, verse 10. Second lesson. Believe that Mount Zion is real, though for us it's spiritual. If you have come to Mount Zion, rejoice and praise God for the way He brought you there. We all come through various ways, don't we? Providences and circumstances that bring us from unbelief to faith. Rejoice and praise God. And in light of your present blessings at Mount Zion, press on. Don't retreat in the face of struggles and hard circumstances. And for goodness sake, don't go camp out at the base of Mount Sinai thinking that you have to earn and keep God's love for you by keeping the law. That is a quick way to rob yourself of joy. Third lesson, if you have not come to Mount Zion, then there is a word for you. It's the the verse right after our passage this morning. Hebrews 12, verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Who is speaking here? It is Jesus Christ. Speaking through the blood that he shed for sinners is speaking to you words of peace and forgiveness and life, but also words of warning. For it goes on to say, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth, Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Do not refuse Christ's warnings. Embrace his invitations of forgiveness and peace and reconciliation and cleansing. Again, I remind you who is speaking to you here from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And if He can uphold the universe by the word of His power, and if He's speaking to you, do not refuse Him. Come to Him in faith. Well, let me close with one final lesson. Uh, We have thought uh, a lot Uh, this morning about the spiritual Mount Zion. Remember, you've not come to what may be touched. It is a spiritual mountain for us. But we haven't thought so much about the Mount Zion that stands in Israel today. It too is a real mountain. That kind of goes without saying. It is a real mountain and has been there since God formed the dry ground. It has remained, it has not been removed. And this mountain in the geography of Israel is surrounded by other mountains which stand as protectors of Mount Zion and Jerusalem. And here's a promise for you. If you trust in God, 
you will be like that Mount Zion. Where do I get that? Psalm 125. Don't turn there, just listen. Psalm 125 is one of those songs that the Israelites would sing on their pilgrimages to Jerusalem. And as they approached Jerusalem and the surrounding mountains, they would see Mount Zion and they would sing, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. It's the lesson. We should rejoice in that. Rejoice that we have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. We've come to God. We've come to Jesus. And so, let us press on until God brings us to the summit of that mountain. Press on, trusting in the Lord, in the mountainous strength that he gives us and his surrounding presence, like the mountains that guard Mount Zion in Jerusalem today. Well, that's our word this morning from Hebrews chapter 12. May God bless it to us, to our encouragement, to our perseverance, that we may indeed obtain to all that is promised. And we will, because God is with us.